the prophecies of Nostradamus. I'm not sure how much you know about Nostradamus. I would not say this afternoon that I'm a Nostradamus expert. And yet some of his prophecies are interesting and probably worth at least a cursory look. Nostradamus makes all sorts of predictions. Those who follow Nostradamus claim that he predicted the coming of Napoleon. They believe that he predicted the coming of the atomic bomb. Still others will say that as you look at the prophecies of Nostradamus, you will see predictions about man first walking on the moon. And of course there are many of the followers of Nostradamus, this, this I guess what you would say almost ancient prophet, who will say that Nostradamus even predicted the assassination of JFK. Now as I was preparing this, I thought to myself, perhaps many of you don't know too much about Nostradamus. And so I thought I would take you on what I call a fast fact tour of Nostradamus' life. Nostradamus was born in France in 1503. He died in 1566. <coughs> so as you'll see, he did not live a long life, 63 years of age. <coughs> I have a cold and you'll have to bear with me a little this afternoon. Some fast facts about Nostradamus. Well, he was born into a... <coughs> a well-to-do family of grain traders in France. They were well-educated, so he didn't come from a poor background. He didn't come from an uneducated background. They were well-educated and Nostradamus himself spoke Latin, Greek and Hebrew together with French. So he was at least fluent in four languages, none of which I speak. So you get the feeling that Nostradamus was an intelligent man. He was from a Jewish family and although they were Jews, they converted to Catholicism and interestingly, as you look at history at around about the time of Nostradamus, the Catholic Church was the state church, was the government church of the time and Nostradamus' wealthy family, they uh, became Catholics, they converted. Nostradamus had a deep interest in apocalyptic end time literature. As I studied <coughs> thank you. As I studied the life of Nostradamus, I found that not, not only did he like uh, 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 apocalyptic literature, he, he spent a lot of time studying the book of Revelation. He studied to become a doctor, and he became a doctor around 1522. He had a sad life in many ways because he lost his children and his first wife to the plague in 1538. And as I was preparing this uh, earlier in the week, I thought to myself, you know, he must have gone through quite a deal of trauma as he lost his wife and his children to the terrible plague that swept through Europe at the time and killed hundreds of thousands of people. In 1540, Nostradamus remarried and he moved to the Mediterranean coast in France. So he went to the south of France, the good place. He, he, he was after, I guess, the good life. Down there, over the next decade, he dedicated his life to formulating prophecies 
And you may or may not realise that Nostradamus was responsible for at least a thousand written down prophecies. He claimed to be able to predict the future through a combination of astrological study and divine inspiration. Now that's not astronomical study, astronomy which is a study of the stars. Astrology is a study of the stars in the context of the occult. And so as he studied the stars in the context of the occult, together with his claim to to divine inspiration, he wrote down more than 1,000 prophecies. He claimed, and as I studied his life, I've got to tell you this afternoon, I found this a little bit disturbing. Nostradamus claimed, I saw it in writing from the hand of Nostradamus himself as I researched this subject. He claimed that an angelic spirit guide helped him to put together the prophecies. Now, when you see all these specials on television of Nostradamus, you never hear that. So, not only did he study the stars, he claimed divine inspiration from this spirit guide, from this being from another world who had actually come and visit with him and share with him how to interpret the prophecies that he was apparently getting from somewhere. Nostradamus published, as I've been saying, at least a thousand prophecies, which if interpreted correctly, now this is important, according to believers of Nostradamus, will tell the future. I've had a look at some of these prophecies. I was interested to read them because as I read them I could not understand them. And then I came across this. Nostradamus claimed only those who are enlightened will understand his prophecies. So these prophecies are not understood by ordinary people like you and me. You have to be enlightened, enlightened as I studied, by a spirit guide yourself to properly understand these prophecies according to Nostradamus about the future. Now there are a number of people today, alive right now, who claim such enlightenment and they maintain that they do understand the prophecies of Nostradamus. Some believe that many of his prophecies have already come true. I thought I might just share a couple with you this afternoon for your own interest. Here it is. This is the hand of Nostradamus. Here's a prophecy he wrote which I found interesting. He said, Beasts, ferocious with hunger, will cross the rivers. The great part of the battlefield will be against Hista. Into a cage of iron will the great one be drawn when the child of Germany observes nothing. Now these enlightened people who are also receiving help from spirit guides are telling us, are telling the world and the the television, the media, they have bought it that Nostradamus here is talking about Adolf Hitler and World War II. Well, I looked at that prophecy and I thought, well, Hista, Germany, maybe. But you know what I found out? Hista is a geographical region near the Danube. And it seemed to me that even with the guidance from his spirit guide and even with the guidance from the stars in an astrological, occultic way, perhaps it's a bit of a far reach 
to see this prophecy here directed at Adolf Hitler when the region he's talking about is a region in the beautiful Danube. It wasn't the only one. This is one that with 9-11 was quoted a lot. In the city of God there will be great thunder, two brothers torn apart by chaos. While the fortress endures, the great leader will succumb. The third big war will begin when the big city is burning. What do you think about that one? 9-11, Twin Towers, Two Brothers, The Great City, The Third War, The Third World War, where, where many are saying now that, that our fight against terrorism, the West fight against terrorism, is a fight, is a, is a Third World War. Well, I don't know. Perhaps this prophecy here is a little bit more convincing than the previous one. But as I went through his prophecies, and we haven't got time to go through too many of them this morning, this afternoon, time after time after time, these prophecies to me seem to be obscure and difficult to understand. (coughs) And I have a problem with Nostradamus, and I don't want to spend all afternoon talking about it, but I just want to give you a quick view on why I believe there's a problem with Nostradamus. First, many of the prophecies include, look, go onto the internet, if you're on the internet, And just print into your search machine Nostradamus and then go and have a look for these prophecies yourself and see what you think. But it seems to me that many of the prophecies include 16th century French terms that modern interpreters just don't understand. I couldn't understand it. I've spoken to others with higher minds than mine and they can't understand them. You have to really reach far to get an understanding out of these prophecies. There are about a thousand of these prophecies, they're called quatrains and they are all obscure, they are all obscure and they are all difficult to interpret and I challenge any fan of Nostradamus to show me one of his prophecies which is not obscure and which is easy to interpret. They don't exist. As Nostradamus himself said, if you want to understand my prophecies, you need enlightenment. Enlightenment from who? Enlightenment from the stars and enlightenment from your own spirit guide. It seemed to me that these prophecies that Nostradamus wrote, which have been embraced by the media of the West, are prophecies that are not written for you and me. Somebody needs to interpret them for us. Thirdly, Nostradamus generally prophesies about wars, famines and disasters. They could fit into many of the world's catastrophes. Chances are the predictions will line up with something at some time. They are so general, these prophecies, that you could just about fit them to any catastrophe that our world goes through. And so I've got to tell you today that my conclusions of Nostradamus were not real positive. In fact, I wondered why the world would cling to a, dare I say, false prophet like Nostradamus when in this book, the Bible, we have many prophets who speak clearly, who speak in a way that an ordinary person can understand and talk about the future in such amazing ways that when you study the prophecies and you see how they unfold, you are convicted, you are compelled to say, these men, these true prophets of God found in this book, the Bible, are are true prophets. 
And I think of Daniel, a prophet who lived about 605 years before Jesus. 16 years of age, he was taken as a slave boy from his home in Jerusalem. He was a young prince of royal family blood. And he was taken from, from his home in Jerusalem as a captive by Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon. And there he went through the University of Babylon, showed himself to be the brightest and the best with God's blessings. And God chose Daniel and God gave Daniel some of the most amazing revelations about the future of our world, about our time. And when I first came across these prophecies, I've got to tell you that they stunned me. They amazed me. And when I see the specials on television about Nostradamus and I see the television anchors desperately reaching out to try and make some sense of these prophecies about where we are headed in this world and then I see the prophecies of Daniel in the Bible, I feel like crying out to the world, what is wrong with us? We have some of the greatest prophets in the history of the world right here in the Bible. And yet the media, the popular media, will cling, will grab hold of someone like Nostradamus in desperation to know what is going to happen in the future of this world. And yet here we have in the Bible Daniel and other prophets who give us clear, clear understanding, clear guidance and clear, clear direction of where we are headed in this world. And it is a frightening world that we live in. And I'm so glad that God chose men like Daniel to share with us what the future of our world and what, what, what is going to happen in the future of our world and what we face. I want to look at a prophecy in Daniel this afternoon. I want to tell you this prophecy is not obscure. It is not directionless and it is not difficult to understand. This prophecy we're going to look at this afternoon for a few moments, it's not a long prophecy, sets the foundations for where we will go in the next four weeks. And I guarantee you, listen to this, I guarantee you that this will be one of the most exciting Bible studies over the next four weeks that you have ever participated in. This is stunning, amazing predictions of the future. And they were given to Daniel by God 605 years before Jesus. That's 2,600 years ago. I want to look at one of these prophecies tonight and it is a foundational prophecy which will set us up to where we are going in the next four weeks. And where we are going is an amazing journey, let me tell you. If you have your Bibles, open them. If you don't, follow on the screen. Daniel chapter 7, verse 1 and 2. It says, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, we are looking around about 538 BC. When Daniel had this vision, he was on his bed, God gave him the vision, he was an old man. And the Bible says, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. And visions passed through his mind, through his head, as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Now let me ask you a question this afternoon. Is that obscure language? Is that difficult language? Can any man off the street read that and understand it with a rudimentary education? Now I have a seven-year-old daughter sitting down there in the pews this afternoon. She is a very good reader. In fact, at seven years of age, I, I think she's almost a better reader than dad. She can read that, my little Hannah, 
And not only can Hannah read it, she doesn't need her dad, the pastor, to interpret it. She can read it and she can understand it. But look at this. Let's see how we go. Daniel said, so he wakes up and he begins to write. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Do you understand that so far? Does it make sense? We're not going too far away, are we, from, 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 from understanding? But listen to this. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. Oh, I love this imagery here. I love the way God works when he talks to mankind. My type of God, using my type of imagery. He says, Daniel, in his dream, Daniel's lying on his bed and this is what he sees. He sees these four great beasts, frightening beasts, come up out of the sea. You can imagine what an impact this must have had on the old man Daniel as he sees this vision. Well, as you look at that, you might say that doesn't make too much sense to me. Four great beasts coming up out of the sea? Well, that's a little difficult. Well, I've told my church here many times, I've told people I've spoken to all over the world many times this, I have a set of keys. Here they are. (coughs) These keys don't have all my keys on them today. When I get home at night, that's the key that will get you into my house. But you know in the dark and my wife, God bless her, I love her, forgets to turn the light on. That is about the last key I make, uh, I try in the door. But when I put that key in the door and I turn it, what happens? The door opens and in I go. To understand this prophecy, all you need are a couple of simple keys that come from the Bible. And when you put the key in the door and you turn you can walk through. This is not obscure, this is not difficult, this is simple, deductive Bible study. So let's look at the keys that will unlock this prophecy. In the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and the visions passed through his mind as he was lying on the bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, in my vision at night I looked and there before me were the four winds of heaven turning up the great sea. A little bit confusing. Four great beasts. Oh, a little bit confusing. Different from the others came up out of the sea. Still a little bit confusing. So we use the keys. We find the keys. Keys to prophecy. This is important. Now let me tell you right now. When you're looking at prophecy, the keys that unlock prophecy must come from the Bible. Did you hear that? Not my interpretation. Not somebody else's interpretation. The keys must come from the Bible. These keys come from the Bible. We've got four great beasts and they're coming up out of what? The sea, it doesn't make sense really in a real world that we live in that four great beasts would come up out of the sea or nobody would go to the beach. So what is the Bible talking about? Let's look at what the Bible has to say about what the sea in prophecy represents. Now look, in prophecy, if you have a key, then that key must be the same in every prophecy you go to. So let's just look at this for a moment. Revelation 17, 15. The angel said to me, 
The waters you saw where the prostitute sits, don't worry about that too much. Stick with this series, you'll find out what this text means exactly. But we're just looking for the key. The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are, are, are peoples, multitudes, nations and languages. Praise God we have a key. The sea equals people, multitudes, nations and languages. Now, if I'm going to use that as a key in prophecy, that key must work in a prophecy in Daniel 7. That key must work in a prophecy in Daniel 9 or Revelation 12 or Revelation 13. I can't have that key work in the Bible prophecy in Daniel 7 and not in Revelation 12. (coughs) The keys must be consistent. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you understand? So every time you come to prophecy, where the sea is mentioned, it must represent people's multitudes, nations and languages. And you stick with this series, I'll guarantee you'll be amazed at how that key fits every single time. Daniel said in my visions at night, I looked and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up lots of of people. Wherever this prophecy occurs, there has to be lots of people. And we're going to find out that this prophecy was concerned with an area in the world that was, that, 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 that was inhabited, it, it, it was inhabited by millions of people. Four great beasts each different from the other, came up out of a place where there are lots of people. So my next question is, what is a beast? Well, in the very prophecy that Daniel writes down, Daniel chapter 7, he tells us, Daniel 7 verse 17 says, the four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise up from the where? The earth. So the beast equals a kingdom. Now, Maybe I'm giving a little away here, but I am a great fan of the Australian Rugby Union team. I'm a great fan and they cause me great disappointment of recent times in the Australian cricket team. I am also a great fan of Australia too, that beautiful woman. That's the boat, I'm talking symbolically. That took the America's Cup from the Americans. Do you know, I've only been to a couple of rugby union matches in my life. Wallabies versus the All Blacks. Do you know what the people wave as a flag at those matches? A boxing. When you go to the cricket, people wave a what? A boxing. And when you, you know, I don't know, some of you won't be old enough to remember, but when Australia too won the America's Cup over there in New York, they had a huge flag, and those of you who were alive at the time, 1982 or 3, what was on that flag? Boxing kangaroo. I want to tell you that in this vision that Daniel is having, that God is giving him, God is using symbolism that you and I understand. He's saying, hey, there are going to be four great nations arise, Daniel, from out of the earth where there are lots of people and I symbolise these nations by animals. And if you think this is a weird and a wonderful interpretation by God, let's look at the reality of where we are today. What's that animal? Oh, ugly little thing. 
A kiwi. Who does that represent? Our beloved brothers and sisters from where? New Zealand. That is their national emblem. If I say to you, Colin, you're a kiwi, that's not an insult. What am I saying? Colin, you're a New Zealander. My little girl is a, what are you, Hannah? A kiwi. She's a New Zealander, born over in New Zealand. Kiwi represents New Zealand. Boxing kangaroo represents who? Australia. Let me try with this one. How about this fellow? Who does he represent? You, so you all know. God is using symbolism that you understand. He knew that. This is not obscure. That beautiful eagle represents the United States of America. And when I was in the United States, some of the biggest eagles I've ever seen. I lived up in the mountains behind San Francisco. And some of the biggest eagles I've ever seen were in the United States of America. And that is an apt animal to represent that powerful, mighty country. I'll test you guys just for a moment this afternoon. Who does that animal represent? Oh, he's a big boy, isn't he? I wouldn't want to be too close to that fellow. Who is he? Great Britain. Again, you understand. One more. Let's see how you go. How about this boy? I'm surprised you got that so quickly. The rooster represents France. And you can go to almost any country in the world. And most countries, now admittedly not all, but most countries will use an animal to represent them as a symbol. So let's look at this. In my vision, Daniel says, at night I looked and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea, churning up a place where there's lots of people. It was a time of trouble. And he says four great kingdoms, each different from the other, came up from amongst lots of people. Okay, let's have a look at the vision. Daniel 7 verse 4. Now remember, if you're a Seventh-day Adventist here this afternoon, I know you understand this. I know you've seen it before. But this is foundational to where we are headed in the next couple of weeks. And I would not dare take you where we are going without this Bible study first. If you are not a Seventh-day Adventist, then this study is designed to show you that God is in control. Make no mistake, the God I serve, He is in control. He knows the past, He knows the present and He knows the future and that is a fact and this prophecy is evidence of it. And If we had the time, I could take you through Bible study after Bible study, prophecy after future prophecy and show you that in every way God knows the past, God knows the present and God knows the future. And it's this God who lives apart from time that's going to see you through the difficulties which are ahead of us in this world which this series will clearly bring out. Daniel chapter 7 verse 4. He says, The first beast was a lion. And it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted up from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man and the heart of a man was given it. Oh, must have been something to see this lion. This lion represents ancient Babylon. 
one of the great wonders of the world. And I want to tell you this afternoon, and I've told my church people, that if you were all of a sudden in 2005 transported back to ancient Babylon, you would be amazed at the city that they had built. That ziggurat, that tall tower was in the middle of Babylon dedicated to Bel, Dagon, their heathen pagan god. They had hot and cold running water. Isn't that amazing? This is two and a half thousand years ago. They lived in beautiful palatial homes. You could race four chariots side by side around the walls of Babylon. There wasn't an army in the world who had siege, siege engines big enough to bash these walls down. The king of, ne- of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, was one of the great kings of all history. He was a warrior king. He was a man of inspiration. His armies followed him into battle from victory to victory. In fact, it was Nebuchadnezzar that took Daniel prisoner when he was only 16 years of age and dragged him back to Babylon. But he also, Nebuchadnezzar, amazing man, had, had, had founded an education system that is second to none. We get most of what we do today when it comes to education, not from the Greeks, like many of you may think, but from the Babylonians. Daniel went to university. Daniel excelled at university. And when God showed him this lion with wings, Daniel immediately recognised it as Babylon. Why? Well, guess what the symbol for Babylon was? A lion. And you can go and look at the Ishtar Gate. Or you can look at the relics as you're looking at here in the Pergamon Museum in Berlin, Germany, of many of the walls and and ruins that they've pulled out of ancient Babylon, which, by the way, is just outside of Baghdad in Iraq. And you will see that on these walls, all over them, are what? Lions. Daniel 7 verse 4 says, The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man. And the heart of a man was given it. Nebuchadnezzar was a proud king. Daniel had spent his entire life, they actually became great kings, trying to convert Nebuchadnezzar. And one day Nebuchadnezzar is looking over his kingdom and he says, Look at what I have built I am a majestic, mighty king. God warned him, humble yourself, Nebuchadnezzar, or I will deal with you. Daniel gave him a warning, but he did not humble himself and he continued in his pride until finally God forced him into the field and sent him stark raving mad. And for seven years he crawled in the, in the fields and the grass and the paddocks outside the palace. His nails grew long, his hair grew long, he ate grass. He was mad. Seven years later he comes out of his madness He humbles himself, he gives his heart to God because of Daniel's witness and God's work. We'll see Nebuchadnezzar in the kingdom. And that's why the Bible says, I watched until his wings were torn off and he was lifted from the ground so he stood on two feet like a man and the heart of a man was given to him. The first thing Daniel sees is a ferocious beast. I've been in contact with ferocious beasts. I've driven through the, the I've driven through the parks of South Africa. I've seen lions. Uh, I've seen leopards. Animals that if you got out of the car, I'd eat you immediately, and I would be a good meal. I tell you, I would rather come in contact with a man who has a man's heart that can be reached by God than with an animal. 
who works on instinct and will eat me if he's hungry. And that's why the Bible says that Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon changed from being a ferocious beast that causes pain and heartache and ferociously attacks other nations into a nation. The king turned into a man that followed me. Very interesting. And you can see there, I just thought I'd put this map in for you to give you an idea of the Babylonian kingdom. went from 605 BC to 538 BC, just under a hundred years. This was the kingdom, as I've been telling you, that Daniel was a slave in. Daniel 7, 5 and there before me was the second beast which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides and it had three ribs in its mouth and between its teeth it was told, get up, eat and eat all your flesh. You know, Belshazzar, who was Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. Would you believe it that Daniel was still alive at this time? He must have been 90 plus. Belshazzar is attacked by the and I guess he, he's a great king in history, this, the, the Medo-Persian king called Cyrus the Great. And the Median armies, the Medo-Persian armies are around the walls of Babylon. They have laid siege to it and Belshazzar the fool, when he should have been protecting the nation, holds a party. And in this party he brings out when Nebuchadnezzar had taken Jerusalem out, they had taken all the gold vessels from the temple and in this party, Belshazzar brings these golden vessels that belong to the Lord God of heaven and he toasts Beldagon, the pagan, fire-eating, baby-consuming. He, he was a, a god that they would sacrifice their children to. Uh, Belshazzar and his wickedness. Nebuchadnezzar's grandson toasts the pagan god with the vessels out of the true God's temple. Oh, an interesting thing happens because on the wall was written by a hand in blood, no body, just a hand in blood up on the wall, high, meany, meany, tackle you fasten. The Bible says that Nebuchadnezzar's knees knocked together. He was so frightened. His mother, who was, uh, who was uh, the wife of Nebuchadnezzar, said, call in Daniel because he never understood what the words mean. Daniel walks in. Belshazzar said, please, please tell me what these words mean. I'll make you third ruler in the kingdom. Daniel says, you can have your purple robe. And I'll tell you what they mean. God has weighed you in the balances, Belshazzar, and tonight you're going to die for your wickedness. And that night, the armies of Darius and Cyrus, the Mede and Persian kings, you know, they'd got, the soldiers had got drunk, would you believe it, and had left the gates down into the river opened. Cyrus was a smart king. He knew he could not batter his way through those huge walls. And so he had diverted the river around the city and they were going to attack through the riverbed where the gates should have been down but a lot easier to get in through those gates and the wall but they'd left them up and that night those Medo-Persian soldiers rushed into that great city Babylon they sacked the city they raped the women they killed the children they, 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 they sacrificed the men and Darius Cyrus the great king of the Medo-Persians became ruler over the old Babylonian empire. And Cyrus went, his kingdom went 200 years. You see, God is showing Daniel a line up of kingdoms through history. 538 
to 332 BC. The prophecy doesn't finish there though. Remember this is leading, this is a prophecy, I'm telling you, it is a prophecy that leads right down into our day. Daniel chapter 7 verse 6, after that, I looked, says Daniel, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads and it was given authority to rule. After the Medo-Persian Empire came Greece and perhaps as you look at history, the greatest warrior king the world has ever seen. Do you know his name? Alexander the Great. He was a king in his early 20s. Do you know the, the name of his legendary war horse? Bucephalus. And Alexander, he was the only one as a young man that could ever ride this war horse, Bucephalus. Alexander the Great, in his early 20s, became the greatest general the world has ever seen. Never has there been a warrior king like Alexander. Undefeated in battle after battle, he took 30,000 Greek soldiers across the straits and he fought the great king Darius on the plains of Arbela and 332 BC, Darius arrayed one million soldiers against him and on his war horse, Bucephalus, with his army behind him, shaped in a wedge like a spear, with his cavalry on the wings, 30,000 soldiers, they attacked that mammoth Persian army of one million men and by the end of the day, Darius the Great, perhaps we could call him Darius the Feeble, was in flight and within months he was dead and Alexander the Great became the greatest general, warlord the world had ever seen. But at 33 years of age, Alexander the Great died in a drunken stupor. This wing, this leopard had wings. Never has armies gone across the face of the world at the speed Alexander the Great and his Greek soldiers did. In fact, Alexander fell on his knees, legend says, and he cried out to the heavens, there is nowhere left for me to conquer. Great, mighty general, but died in a drunken stupor. If I had more time, I'd tell you the story because it's a sad one. But as he's dying, legend now says that his generals came to him. Alexander, you only have one infant son. Who will lead the kingdom? And Alexander, and this is in typical Alexander fashion, looks up into the eyes of his general, generals. He says, to the kingdom, the kingdom goes to the strongest. This leopard, which represents Greece, had four heads. Those four heads were Alexander's four generals. And those four generals, they split the Grecian Empire into four. And that empire went from 332 to 168 BC. But God says there is one animal left. We're coming into our time now, brothers and sisters. And I tell you what, you better hang on because next week as we get into this last animal, I tell you you're going to see things that you never thought were possible. The Bible says they are. 
says, After that in my vision at night I looked and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victim and trampled underfoot. Whatever was left was different from all the former beasts and it had ten horns. Now I'm not going to tell you everything about this beast today because it is this beast that sees us through to the end of time. But I do want to tell you that this fourth beast after the empire, the ancient empire of Greece was Rome. Pagan Rome. It was pagan Rome that crucified Christ. It was pagan Rome that ruled from one end of Europe to the other. In fact, it's the biggest and the greatest kingdom the world has ever seen. It was a kingdom, their armies were of iron and they would crush resistance everywhere they went and they went from Britain in the west to India in the south to almost Russia in the east. Mighty kingdom. Went for hundreds and hundreds of years. In fact, it was Rome that sacked Jerusalem and hung men on crosses into the distance over the horizon in AD 70. Jesus prophesying, was on the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem and he begins to weep because he saw the Roman soldiers 40 years after he walked the earth sacking Rome and he said, Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you like a chick, like a, like a chicken gathers her chicks under her wings. But he says, you would not have it, you would not have it. And of course Rome was destroyed in AD 70. Interesting little sidelight there. Jesus in Matthew 24 had prophesied about the fall of Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem at the time there were many followers in the early Christian church and Jesus said to them, when, 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 when the armies of Rome surround the city, don't panic. They will withdraw. He said, when they withdraw, you make sure you flee. And that's exactly what happened in AD 70. Titus surrounded Jerusalem. And then inexplicably, and history has no reason why to this day, Titus withdrew his soldiers. And when he withdrew his soldiers, every Christian in that city fled. Just a little while later, he brought his soldiers back again. They surrounded the city and there was a great slaughter. And do you know that not one single Christian in AD 70 died in the sack of Rome? Why? Because they believed in a God who knows the past and they believed in a God who knows the present and they believe in a God who knows the future. In just the next few weeks I'm going to take you into some frightening, very sobering scenarios of what is ahead of us here in this world. But the same God that was looking after the Christians in Jerusalem in AD 70 against this terrible oppressor Rome is the same God who will look after us. And just as he saved the Christians of ancient Jerusalem in AD 70, so if he is in your heart and you belong to him, he will save you. I want to tell you there is a cost to follow Jesus. Yeah, it hurts. He calls us to to do things which are not easy. He calls us to give up things, but what we get in return, Jesus and assurance, you can't pay for it. I know that every Christian that lived in Jerusalem in AD 70 will be a testimony to that when you talk to them in the kingdom of heaven. You get a sense of the vastness of the Roman Empire as you look at that map. And Rome went from 168 BC to around about 
538 AD, 600 plus years. And Rome is the greatest empire the world has ever seen and it will be the greatest empire the world in, in, in area anyway will ever see. But you know what? Rome fell apart. And I want to just close on this because this is really a two-part study and we continue next week and this is where it gets very interesting. But I want to just share one more thing with you this afternoon. Daniel says, After that in my vision at night I looked and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful, pagan Rome. It had large iron teeth. They were the kingdom of iron. They used iron weapons. Well, many of the other, uh, other nations round about them used bronze. So it had large iron teeth, it crushed and devoured its victims and it trampled them underfoot, whatever was left. Let me tell you, have a look at the history of pagan Rome, that's what they did. They were merciless. No one could stand before them and they crushed their enemies. But look at this, it was different from all the beasts. Let that cogitate in your head for the next week. It was different than all the other beasts. It was different than all the other kingdoms. Just think about that. That is an important sentence. And it had ten horns. We've got to find out what a horn is. You've got to find out what the key is that tells us what a horn is. The Bible says in Daniel 7.24, the ten horns are ten kings who will come from the pagan nation of Rome. As Rome fell, and Rome was really in decline somewhere from 300 AD onwards, but when Rome fell, finally she was split into ten different tribes. Her territory was divided amongst ten tribes. Ten tribes that had been there all along, but they rose up, they rebelled and they threw the Romans out. And you can see that these ten tribes, this is amazing. This is a vision, I'm telling you. This is a vision that Daniel had 2,600 years ago. Nostradamus never had anything like this. Not only does God say, hey, you're going to see Babylon, then you're going to see Medo-Persia, then you will see Greece, then you will see pagan Rome. He then goes on and says, listen to me, Daniel. Pagan Rome will be split up into ten different tribes. History attests to the fact that that is exactly what happened. Amazing. Is it any wonder that I've chosen the Bible, God's book, as my source of truth. And you can see the beginnings of, of, of modern day Europe today. I wonder if you can tell me Suvi, the Suvi, what tribe were they a part of? Portugal, someone knows Europe. How about the Vandals? My mother used to call me a Vandal when I was a kid at times. They actually don't exist anymore. Hold on to that because that's an interesting story next week. What about the Franks? Uh-huh. The Anglo-Saxons? I would hazard a guess this evening that most of you belong to one of these tribes with your ancestry. Am I correct? Most of us come, most of us have our ancestry, not all of us. I think, Colin, you might come from somewhere else. But most of us have our ancestry here in Australia from Mother Europe. God has actually given Daniel a snapshot vision of his day 
as you will see next week, down to our day and beyond. And the beauty of this prophecy is we can look at what God told Daniel in around about 538 BC. We can look at what God told Daniel in the past and we can go, you know what? God was right. Babylon did come and go, just as he said. And so too did Medo-Persia and so too did Greece and so too did Rome. And wonder of wonders, Europe was split into ten different tribes which are the origins of what we see today in modern day Europe. I love a God that knows the past and the present and the future. You can, if you choose to, hang your future, you can hang your life, if you would like to, on the prophecies of Nostradamus. You can rely on a prophet who gets visions and guidance from the stars in an astrological, occultic sense. You can rely, if you want, on a, on a guy, on a man who gets help from a spirit guide who comes from another world, who sits down beside him and gives him that guidance. Well, you can choose, praise God like I have, to get help and guidance and direction from Daniel's God, the true God of heaven. And that's who I choose this afternoon. And I pray that as we go into the serious, sobering times of our world in the near future and even the present day, that you will choose not Nostradamus and his spirit guide and his occultic astrological guidance from stars. I pray and I hope that like me, and I'm proud and unashamed to say it, that you will choose the God of Daniel, the God who knows the past. Oh, the God who knows the present, and as you're going to see next week and beyond, make no mistake, it's a fact that God who knows the future, that's who I have bet my life on and it's the safest bet any man or woman can make in this world. Let's bow our heads. Thank you God for being with us this afternoon. As we continue into what I think are some of the most exciting prophecies in the Bible, I pray that you will bless us, Lord. Open our hearts to your truth. May we respond to your gentle call. And may there be no one in this church before the end of this series who doesn't make a choice to bank everything they have on you. Oh, there are sobering times ahead of us, Lord. We leave this place with assurance knowing that you are in control, that you are the God of the past, that you are the God of the present, and that you are the God of the future and that it is you who decides how things will happen. So protect us, care for us, love us, Lord, please, I pray, and give us peace. In Jesus' name, Amen. Next week I, I want to invite you back because we are, we are, we are going to do an interesting topic called, if I can get to it, the Antichrist. And I want to tell you that never is there a more important subject in 2005 than that. So thank you for coming this afternoon. 
Have a good Saturday afternoon and we look forward to seeing you next week as we unpack, as we open up these exciting prophecies. God bless.